Welcome to the Paul Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Scarcely two weeks after America's ignominious exit from Afghanistan and a costly 20-year war that's left little but destruction and anguish in its trail, America has joined Australia and the UK in what seems to be another adventure. The AUKUS, and I don't even know how to pronounce that, AUKUS, (laughs) seems somewhat awkward As a security pact, it's been described in Australia as, quote, another provocative alliance that can only end in blood and tears, and for no good reason other than a nostalgic addiction to imperial power, end quote. Is that what is going on here? AUKUS, yes. I think think that is the... That is how people are referring to it. I even saw a great headline that was like, AUKUS, POCUS, China Focus. That was it. (laughs) I'm sorry, Professor. It sounds like something out of Harry Potter. (laughs) Oh, my Lord, the AUKUS are coming. (laughs) That is a great, yes, that is great. There's so much to unpack with AUKUS, uh, with this new agreement between Australia, the United States, and UK. Let's just start with exactly like what is this thing and how should we even think about it? It's not quite right to say that this is a military alliance pact per se. This is not like the North Atlantic Treaty or even the treaty that the United States has, say, with Japan, which is a mutual defense pact. The United States already has that kind of relationship with these two countries, but separately, uh, the UK— course, through NATO. And then Australia with what's called the ANZUS Treaty, which was um, a pact. It's still in existence between the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. Now, New Zealand had a bit of a falling out with that pact, but the U.S. obligations to Australia still hold under that pact. So this isn't actually a new like defense pact that the U.S. has never had before. But what it does point to, and some people have even called it Anzus 2.0, you know, that it's it's Anzus without New Zealand, and in replace New Zealand, throw in the UK. What it does point to is perhaps an enhancement of the security relationship between the United States and Australia, and also the United States and UK. And, and, and there's a lot of things to talk about with this. So first of all, what does the treaty itself actually do? So a key part of the treaty is it is about cooperation in the production of submarines. And as you can imagine, given the geography of that region, that is very important to Australia, uh, especially Australia's views vis-a-vis China. Hence that headline that I shared, and that's something that we can talk more about. It's about how this relates to China. Fundamentally, that's what this is about. But there's more than that. First of all, these submarines are nuclear submarines, meaning not armed with nukes, but powered by nuclear power. And so what that means is, this is technically speaking, a form of proliferation 
with respect to nuclear technology, because now you're going to have Australia with these submarines. Now there's some arrangements that the U.S. would still maintain them, maybe even have personnel on them. I mean, these are all details that be hashed out. But that's fundamentally what this is about. Then it also sets the stage for other forms of enhanced security cooperation, such as an intelligence sharing being a big one, and then the potential even for U.S. basing in Australia. Those things, though, still need to be fleshed out, but it sets the foundation for this kind of enhanced security cooperation between the United States and Australia with the U.K. involved as well. So that's fundamentally what this thing is about. Again, it's not itself a defense pact, but it is a way of enhancing the existing cooperation, defense cooperation that the U.S. already had with those two respective countries. Now, why are they doing this? That's kind of the next thing to think about. Well, the key reason why they're doing it is China, that this is a form of what we call balancing which is in that region, obviously there is much concern and there's been growing concern over the past year, two years, about China's growing military assertiveness throughout East Asia and then creeping into the South Pacific region where Australia has interest as well. So we can think about, you know, you could, we can go through and enumerate all the various things we have before on the podcast, whether it's China having its dispute and, and conflict in the Himalayas with India, whether it's enhanced disputes in the South China Sea and continuing disputes in the South China Sea with Japan, whether it is assertive and more aggressive overtures towards Taiwan. And Australia takes this very seriously. Folks that I've spoken to who are involved in like the Australia defense space and foreign policy space, like this has been a big concern, even if they, you know, some people might say, well, it's overblown, but it's regardless, it is a huge concern, the Australian government viewing kind of this growing assertiveness by China. And so Australia wants to be able to take measures to be able to enhance their ability to counter China, especially with respect to naval power, hence the submarines being such a key part of this. It's also consistent with the U.S. policy of wanting to create, and this is the phrase that Blinken Tony Blinken, Biden's Secretary of State has used, which is creating a League of Democracies, very much echoing the phrase that was used by Mike Pompeo, the Trump's last Secretary of State. He used the phrase Alliance of Democracies, which I actually think Pompeo used that phrase because he was borrowing on the League of Democracies idea from Blinken. So I think Blinken was actually the first one to use it. But the idea is that the U.S. wants to create kind of a enhanced coalition of democratic nations globally, but especially in that region, to help counter growing influence by China in both military and economic spheres. And so kind of creating this alliance of democracy, league of democracies, pack of democracies, whatever you want to call it. And so this agreement is very much a important step in that process. You also look at the Quad, as it's called, the, the Quad being the United States, India, Australia, and Japan. And the Quad being a group of countries in that region, as hence the, the members, that are cooperating more on the political side of things. So, for example, they had a summit where they made agreement about sharing more vaccine technology with India. But that's also part of the various agreements that the Biden administration is pursuing to try to create this alliance of democracies, this league of democracies, to help balance against growing 
influence and pressure both militarily and economically by China in the region. And so that's fundamentally what this is about. So again, kind of going with the details, it's about submarines and military technology sharing and basing, but at a higher level, it's about balancing China. You're saying that Australia is uh, concerned. Is it right to be concerned or is it just Australia being desperate for relevance in the world? This is an interesting question, not just with respect to Australia, but with respect to the third country that I haven't really said much about so far. So I talked about this in light of Australia's interests and concerns, and we can definitely come back to that directly to your question. And I've talked about it with respect to this broader foreign policy goal of the United States, this League of Democracy Alliance of Democracy. I haven't said much about the UK. What are they doing with this, right? Well, and and this, maybe in some ways this goes back to your question uh, the first part of your question about is this just like kind of a new or a, a nostalgia for imperial power and so forth that the, the British have? For me, Britain very much fits with what you just said, which is kind of the seeking of relevance. So a key phrase that the Johnson administration has been using, Johnson's government has been using, is, of course, global Britain, right? The whole benefit of Brexit is that it now allows the UK to have this global presence unfettered by the needs of having to make sure everything is in compliance with EU regulations and also unfettered from concerns about maybe trying to align British foreign policy with the rest of the foreign policy and the maybe grand strategic visions of the other European powers. Britain is now in a position where they can pursue their own foreign policy. Now, Britain was essentially already doing that, right? I mean, just Case in point, the Iraq War. I mean, this is, you know, the Blair, Blair and Bush very much worked together, and you had other members of the EU as well as NATO who were opposed to that. France being the key example. And we'll come back to France, but this is, in many ways, an effort by the UK to try to. I view it as as trying to exhibit this new global Britain presence. We are going to be once again a global presence, not just a European power, but a global power in this case power in Asia and the Pacific. Their other role in this is they kind of played kind of the broker too, I think in many ways between the United States and Australia, which exhibits, you know, very much shows this kind of newfound role of them in trying to have a global presence. So for me, when it comes to trying to show new relevance, it's really about the UK as opposed to Australia. Now, having said that, going directly to your question, should Australia have these concerns? And I think that that's a point of debate. I, I really do think that's a point of debate within the foreign policy space in Australia, within their community there, about how big of a concern should we have about China. One thing that I, has always stood out to me is the phrase rules-based order. So this is a phrase, I think we've, we've talked about it before on the podcast, but it's the idea that the current international system based on treaties and international organizations and so forth is a rules-based order, meaning that all the countries agree to follow a certain set of rules that are laid out in these treaties, whether they're economic treaties, military treaties, political human rights treaties, what have you. And that phrase is very popular. Anthony Blinken has used it, and it's often used to contrast what the potential foreign policy vision is of China. That, you know, for example, Anthony Blinken talks about how the U.S. is defending a rules-based order that uh, we want China to be part of, 
right? So they're saying that China's not necessarily part of this. Well, what's interesting about that phrase is even though you do hear people in the U.S. policy community use it, the phrase really gained resonance and prominence in Australia's foreign policy community. So you hear this phrase used a lot in their foreign policy community in this notion that it is in contrast to the vision of China, both in military sense and economic sense. So whether Australia has reasons to be concerned, and they've had trade disputes with China, and of course they see the military tensions that have been building up, so I think there are there is some legitimacy to this. There's been without a doubt that the Australian foreign policy community has taken seriously that China poses a challenge to them. And so they're seeking these type of agreements to put them in a position to consolidate allies, if you will, to be able to help them to meet this challenge. And so I think that's kind of how Australia is viewing this. So that's the part of this, that's the elephant in the room, if you will, that we haven't talked about yet, I'm just hinted at, which is France and the French reaction to this. And for those who aren't familiar, why does France play a role? Well, the reason why is because back in 2016, due to these concerns that I've been sharing that Australia has, that their foreign policy community has, government has, they had signed an agreement in 2016 for the French government to build submarines. Well, Creating this new agreement, AUKUS basically negates. They are now leaving that arrangement that they had with France. And the reasons why is because, first of all, I mean, there's a lot of technical reasons. Part of it is there were cost overruns and delays. And I mean, that's like standard operating procedure when it comes to the defense industry, right? Look at like the Joint Strike Fighter, the F-35. I mean, this is, you know, this is not unique to France. This is the U.S. defense industry as well. And so that was part of it. And there was known frustrations about that on the part of the French government. There was also the idea, though, that even despite those cost overruns and delays, at least according to the analysts that I follow who really dive into the details of this, you know, really know the submarine specs like on point, that there was also a concern that basically even if everything went hunky-dory and these subs were delivered, they would be essentially outdated fairly soon. They were not going to be of the same level as the type of submarines that could be built by the U.S. industry. And so my sense is that that was a big part of this, was that it was kind of like, look, I mean, even if you can deliver, you're not necessarily going to be delivering what we need, not so much for today, but 10 years from now. And so I think that that was a big part of why Australia decided to change. Now, this also feeds into where the U.K. comes in. My sense from what I understand is that the UK played a key role in kind of brokering this, right? They kind of saw this opportunity, again, going back to kind of the notion of they could assert themselves now as global Britain. They saw this opportunity 
to help broker this change of relationship from Australia vis-a-vis France over to the United States. And so that's why I think the decision was made to leave the agreement with France and move over to this new agreement with the United States. But to your point, obviously, the French were very upset about this, not just that the agreement was broken, but that I think they were caught off guard by this announcement, right? This announcement happened just like a week and a half ago, big fanfare. You have this virtual conference between all three leaders. They make the announcement and people are like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, I remember seeing the Twitter chatter myself being like, whoa, this is okay. What's happening here? And turns out the French were just as surprised by this. And that really is the bigger issue, is it's not so much a, hey, it's not personal, it's just business. I mean, take that phrase for what it is, but even if it is just business, the French felt like they had a right or should have been informed about this a while ago, that there should have been more communication done instead of it being done more in a deceptive way, secretive way. Now, There's been arguments made about, well, we couldn't share this with the French because that could have undermined certain parts of the negotiations because it's not just between the governments. You also have industries and firms involved. That could be part of it. There's also this long history of kind of like being wary of sharing information with the French. So something that I pointed out that if you go back to even the North Atlantic Treaty negotiations, the pre-negotiations for those were called the ABC talks. It was the Americans, the British, and the Canadians. And they met in Washington, D.C. in the spring of 48. And they were kind of like, well, should the French be involved? And they said no, because they can't keep secrets, right? I mean, even if they meant to keep secret. Uh, we don't trust their, like, we, we think that their codes could be broken by the Soviets, et cetera. So they just didn't include the French, but it's actually part of like a pattern, if you will. And of course, there's always been this animosity between the United States and NATO allies, which includes Britain and the French. The French have actually left part of the NATO military apparatus for Charles de Gaulle. So there's just a long history there of kind of tough relations between the United States, the British, and the French with respect to security. And so you can kind of see where maybe they're like, I don't know if we want to give them a heads up on this. We better just go ahead and do it. And so that's, (laughs) but yes, that is the elephant in the room is, wait a minute, okay, this is all fine and good, but what about the French? And what does that now mean, given that you were deceptive towards the French? I, I can't let that one pass. <laughs> um, Boris Johnson, of course, is a huge history fan and, and has indeed written a book about Churchill, fancies himself something of a Churchill, has completely screwed up Brexit. They have no petrol in petrol tanks in the UK at the moment. They're running out of resources. They have no staff to work in hotels or homes for the aged. I mean, it is a complete and utter mess. This is his opportunity to hit back at the French who he sees as responsible for this complete and utter mess he's created. How do you unpick something like that? Brexit can't be divorced from this at all. Whether this is truly a tit for tat for these difficulties, I mean... It absolutely could be there. I mean, of course, obviously, these negotiations are long term. And so the exact issues that the 
British economy is facing right now may not have been on the radar when they were first trying to broker this agreement. I guess the negotiations started last year and picked up steam then, of course, with the, or at least or at least earlier this year, but probably even late last year. It's still completely unclear exactly when the negotiations started, you know, how much there was Trump administration involved, which by the way, I think the Trump administration would have done this exact same thing. I think it is possible though, that the, oh, we're not even going to tell the French about this. Forget them. I think that could have fed into this. So I think your argument could feed into the notion of, you know, we're going to do this and you know what, forget them. We're not even going to tell them about it. So I think that could have played a role. I can't say for sure that that played a role. You know, that's something that I guess we'll just have to wait until Johnson writes his Churchillian memoir, right? And I'm sure he'll elaborate on his thinking during this time. The supposed villain in this piece that this pact was meant to counter and intimidate is, of course, China. Will it work? I think it depends on the next step. So as I mentioned, this is, to me an important kind of initial step, maybe even more than initial step. You could say that the quad plays a little bit more of the initial step, but it's an important step towards this eventual League of Democracies, Alliance of Democracies that's specifically geared towards containing, constraining, countering, balancing, whatever phrase you want to use, China's influence in the region. And so the question of whether this will work for that really does depend on those follow-up steps, both in terms of that broader agenda, okay, is this now followed up with further agreements with other countries in the region, both economically as well as militarily. I think that is something that can't be overlooked, is this is by no means, at least in my opinion, a substitute for like the failure to create the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have been an economic agreement that would have helped on this path towards creating like an alliance of democracies, though not every country that was part of that is um, technically a democracy or would have been part of that. So that's one aspect to it. And then the other aspect in terms of follow-up is the actual agreement itself, right? Okay. Just like the French and the Australians had an agreement in 2016 and then things didn't kind of pan out, could that happen here? There's a possibility for that. And I think the U.S. has more of a track record in terms of the production of these submarines. So I do think that there's potential that this will actually come to fruition. But it's all in the follow-up, It both in terms of the specifics of AUKUS, but also in terms of what further agreements does this lead to. Isn't there the danger of driving the French and Europe closer to China? There is a danger of that. There's a danger of what you could call bandwagoning, which is, well, gee, if you're not going to cooperate with us, we're going to go ahead and we're going to you know, now align more with China. That's, I'm not so sure about that. That's where things start to get even more complicated. And the reason why is because there's another country here that we haven't talked much about because it hasn't really been the point of conversation of any of this, which is Russia. So France and the other European countries very much have geostrategic concerns, we want to use that phrase, um, regarding Russia. And that continues to be kind of the prominent number one priority when it comes to security affairs for continental Europe. But there's been many conversations about how they can be playing a role, and especially playing a role via NATO in the Pacific 
in East Asia and specifically vis-a-vis -vis China. And the reason why this has become more of a concern is because, as has been brought up by several officials who are of NATO capitals, they brought up that, look, it's not a map, like China might be in East Asia, but they're having involvement in Europe. And could this lead to potential strategic political concerns? Could this contribute to an undermining of democracy, further undermining of democracy in European countries, if these countries are willing to work with China? And I think that that is a concern of France. I think that is a concern of some of the prominent, uh, or I guess, major European powers. So I'm not sure that it's as simple as it'll say, hey, since the submarine deal went bad, we're now turning to China. But Instead, could it lead to more of an independent European policy? Could it lead the EU to say, we can't really trust the British anymore because of Brexit and now what's happened with AUKUS? United States is the US and look, I mean, they just left Afghanistan, right? I mean, we, we can't really rely on them and Australia, who knows what's going there. We need to have more of an independent security strategy apparatus, military. Macron himself had made comments about creating the European army. Of course, that went nowhere. But you could see more renewed calls for an independent European defense policy, not one that aligns with China, but one that's aiming geared towards countering China, but not beholden to the British or the Americans, as it would be if it was pursued solely through NATO. Well, President Biden said America was back on the world stage. Unfortunately, he didn't say where on that stage. Where, where does this put the U.S. in relation to its allies now? What's been interesting has been seeing the divide in the conversations, the divide in the views, that there's some people who view this as, wow, okay, this is, this is the U.S. trying to pursue this policy of, you know, America is back, lines of democracies, countering China. Some folks saying, you know, if we go look back in years from now, we'll look back at this as the official start of the new Cold War. That's been the one view, but that's a very military view. That's a, that's a view that's very much informed by military matters. There's other folks who are saying, well, but the U.S. has been kind of missing, missing the whole real conversation here, which is on economic affairs. The U.S. has been absent and not engaged in those di discussions, and that's where the action is. And in contrast, China has been much more engaged on the economic side of things. So to give you an example— after the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations fell apart, which, by the way, yes, the Trump administration was the ones who ended it, but I think those were going to end even under the uh, potential hypothetical Clinton administration, those would have ended. And I think that would have been a big mistake for regardless. And we can talk about that another time, but be as it may, those ended. And those countries went ahead that were supposed to be part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is basically, you know, more or less every country that borders the Pacific Ocean, except for China, that they were going to, they went ahead and created their own agreement. Well, China has just now applied to join that agreement, right? And so at almost the exact same time that the U.S. with Australia and U.K. announced this AUKUS, which is very much military focused, you see China taking an economic approach. And many people who are analysts of that region say that's where the action is. And so that's what the U.S. is really missing. So I like your point about, yes, the U.S. is on the stage, but are they actually in the center or are they off to the side? And that's the discussion. And quite a few folks think they're actually standing over to the side.
it's fascinating. It's going to continue to be fascinating to to follow years from now. I think you know as much as there was this attention given to the exit from Afghanistan, this could end up being the bigger, more influential policy, either because of what it represents or because of what it actually does. But I think that this AUKUS thing has greater potential to be more meaningful from a foreign policy, especially from the standpoint of just grand, greater international politics, international relations standpoint. I think this could end up having bigger implications than what happened last month, which was the withdrawal from Afghanistan.